So Jonathan is a hero. He's one of the few people in the scripture that you just don't see a lot bad about him presented, although he's full of sin, but he's a hero. The Lord did something great through him. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. Let's go give you the, the, the notes that will help you. I want you not to identify yourself so much as Jonathan, but throughout the sermon as the armor bearer following the Jonathan. I think that will make much more gospel sense as we go forward. So what does Jonathan do? First of all, he recognizes the need in the land. I mean, he knows exactly what's going on with God's enemies. The Philistines are having their way with the children of Israel right now. Jonathan waged war. They came back with their hundreds of thousands of people. They are dominating. They have taken over Saul's capital called Michmash. They have expanded throughout the land. They now own the trade routes. They already had a decisive tactical advantage with all their weaponry. Now no one in Israel has any swords or spears. I guess if they're going to fight, they're going to have to do with slingshots, which kind of can work out well if God's with you. You can't even sharpen your own instruments. There are no blacksmiths. They've outlawed them in the land. They have totally taken away the people's rights to defend themselves. And if you want to get your farm tools sharpened, you now have to go to a Philistine blacksmith and pay them a hefty fee to get this done. Saul and his men, they're gone. They're hiding. So what's all going on with God's enemies? They're winning, it looks like. What's going on with God's people? They're suffering. Some of them have been taken hostage. Many of them are killed. They're all being impoverished. Great is their suffering. And what's going on with God's king? his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, his Saul, it's not a good day. That king, he's got his 600 men. And where is he found? Up on a plateau, hiding out, not engaging the enemy. We have the, the king who has been uh, discouraged. We have the king that has been forsaken. And next to him are 600 men. And next to him is his new counselor, his own priest. Samuel's nowhere to be found, but we have the grandson or the great-grandson of Eli, a relative of Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. So we have now the glory-forsaken king next to the glory-forsaken priest, and there are 600 men around a palm tree, I mean pomegranate tree, in a cave. It's really bad. Yeah, that's where God's enemies are. That's where God's people are. That's where God's king is. But sometimes he's working behind the scenes and we don't understand what's going on. You see, Saul is a pathetic leader, but he has a brilliant son, a faithful son. And dads, we can just say, thank you, Jesus, for that sometimes, can't we? that God does not always allow our children to suffer with the same horrible characteristics that we have. Jonathan is a remarkable son. He recognizes and is troubled by what goes on. He then takes it to God, and he has incredible faith. Oh, Jonathan knows why they're in the situation they are. Great has been the sin of God's people in not purging the land of the Philistines. 
Great has been the sin of God's people in saying, we reject you, God. We want a king of our own like the other nations. And great has been the sin of Saul who said, I'll be my own priest as we saw last week. And Jonathan, I think, knows the sentence. Thanks a lot, Dad. The throne that was going to be mine, the crown that could have been mine, God has taken it away from you, Dad. God has taken away from you and your family. We're not in the royal bloodline anymore. As a matter of fact, God has already chosen a man who's after his own heart. God's got the replacement, Dad. So I think Jonathan knows the sin of the land and the sentence. But he knows his God. He knows that his God is still worthy of all praise. That his God still is a God of mercy and a God who saves and a God who's made incredible promises that if they would be faithful in warring against the people of the land, that he would send them scurrying away like cockroaches in the night when the light is shone upon them. And he knows the power of God, that God just doesn't make empty promises, but that when God decides he's going to flex his mighty arm, there's nothing that the Lord Almighty cannot do. So Jonathan is a man who recognizes the problem and has faith in God. Hence the title of the sermon, his faith fueled him away from passivity, but to courageous action. He makes his plan. Now, earlier, Jonathan has proven to be a man of action. While Dad was sitting still with 2,000 men, Jonathan, with 1,000, made a raid and won the day. Now, Jonathan still sees his father standing still with 600 men. Jonathan has one, but he decides, I have no desire to sit back and be on the sidelines and just wait and see what's going to happen. Now we know maybe why Jonathan doesn't talk to his father. Because he knows that he has this, this idea of the need, and he has this idea of what God can do, and he has this vision compelling up within him. But his dad doesn't share the same vision, neither does he share the same theology. And he can't bear share that with his dad and let his dad hinder him in what God is, seems to be calling him to do. And he can't tell the men either lest word get back to Saul. So I think this is an example of Jonathan honoring his father, but not telling him everything. There's a distinction here. He honors his father, but he doesn't trust his father. But he does trust one armor bearer. He pulls along this armor bearer, this servant. I think a soldier, I think he must have been a friend. Incredible. Trust is seen here. And he shares with him. Hey, armor bearer guy. Mr. Anonymous. Why not you and I go to war against the Philistines? Come on. Let's see what the Lord has for us. Let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It just may be that the Lord will work salvation for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few or by two. To which the servant says, what? Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. 
Oh, man. There are some leaders who manipulate and coerce to get people to follow them. Some who, profit, who promise profit. Hey, if you follow me, it'll go well with you. Some dominate by fear. Here is an example of a leader who has someone following, following a crazy plan. I'm with you against all odds. Your soul is my soul. Your heart is my heart. We are knit together. It's like Jonathan has his mighty man like David would have his mighty men. This is how you know, leaders, that your children are following you, mom and dad, or that your spouse is following you, husband, or that your church is following you, elders, because they don't have to be manipulated or coerced. They share the same heart with you, and they want to follow you into battle. You're inspiring. They believe in you. You may die. They may die, but we're going to die together. Good leadership is seen here. At this point, then, we see the strategy. Yes, it is good to make a plan. Some people try to polarize those who plan and strategize versus those who just trust Jesus. I would tell you, do both. Strategize and supplicate. Trust the Spirit. Be a dependent church, a humble church, who prays and trusts the Spirit while you're having this vision well up in your chest. Pray and trust the Spirit while you look at the enemy. Pray and trust the Spirit while you use your mind and say, what would logic have me do? Pray and trust the Spirit as you devise your plan, as you make your strategy. And then pray and trust the Spirit as you go along the way. This is what happens with Jonathan and the armor bearer. What's his plan? All right, we're going to crawl down this mountain. I think I have a picture of the plateau that's there. On one side on the top of a mountain would have been Israel with Saul. On the other side on the top of the mountain would have been where uh, the Philistines were. So what we're going to do is we're going to crawl down one side of the rocky slope, the one called Thorny. We're going to sneak over, and before we start climbing slippery, going uphill, we're going to announce what we're doing. We're going to tell them we're coming. And if they are on top of the mountain and they're looking down at us and they say, don't you come a step closer, we're going to know the Lord's not in this. We made our plan, but the Lord has guided us. We're going to do the next right thing and go back home. But if we go to the base of the mountain and yell up, Hey, fellas, you Philistine uncircumcised people. What's up? And if they invite us to come near, oh, we're going. The battle is ours. The Lord is going to give victory into our hands. Oh, we see how they strategize and how they supplicate, how they make plans and how they pray, how they think. They dream, they're ambitious, and yet teachable and guidable. A good characteristic of a leader. At this point then comes the sacrifice. Incredible sacrifice. Now, there are a lot of people who sing, all to Jesus I surrender. I mean, a lot of us intend to sacrifice. But as I told someone today on the phone, a lot of times the old preacher said, we're a bunch of living sacrifices 
crawling off the altar because we don't want to be there any longer. But here we have men who despite the disadvantages, and what are the disadvantages? There are many. Oh, we've got numerical disadvantages. Two against 20 plus, a bunch. We've got uh, weaponry disadvantages. They had all the swords and spears and chariots and horsemen. It appears only Saul and Jonathan have swords. At least that's how the text presents the story to us. Armor bearer must have had an easy job just carrying one sword. We've got uh, material disadvantages. How about physical disadvantages? Those guys have been sitting back, relaxing. Jonathan and his armor bearer are like people who have just played two double headers in a row and going in for their third game. They climbed down a mountain. They crossed a valley. Now they're climbing up, the text says, hand and foot. It's hard to get up that hill. This is way more than a table rock hike. We've got geographical disadvantages. Once they get to the top of the hill, there's no help coming from their friends. They're too far away. The climb is too great. Then we have a tactical disadvantage. We're telling people we're coming. The element of surprise is gone. But we're kind of crazy. We're kind of motivated. God's people do things that the world look at, looks at and says, that's a little, uh, woo, out of here, those Jesus freaks. But your whole Bible is filled with people not doing the normal thing, not living life the usual way, but saying, our God is great. The need is great. His promises are great. We're not that great. But who knows? The Lord may do something incredibly special. Game on. And they actually sacrifice. This is not prosperity theology. They're not naming and claiming it. Who knows, it says. Perhaps, it says. They may climb up the mountain and die. The sacrifice is made, though, when they say, no turning back. No turning back. Here we go. The pitch is coming. We're not watching. We're taking the swing. What happens next? They climb the mountain. Victory. Oh, the taunting is great. Look, it's Groundhog Day. The Hebrew, the Hebrew gophers or rats are, are scurrying out of their holes and running around. Look, there's two more of them there. Come on up, fellas. Sure, we have a gift for you. We'll show you a thing or two. Come on up and join the party. They call the two men up, and what happens? They climb the hill, and I love how the text presents this. It shows Jonathan out front with his sword, and it shows him striking, and then it shows the armor bearer coming behind, finishing what Jonathan started. Oh, when you get to the Jesus us thing, that's going to be really cool. That he's the mighty warrior out front. And we're in the mopping up process. The victory's already been won by he who carries the sword. But we are his armor bearer and he allows us to share with him in this. They taunt, they strike, the armor bearer finishes, an earthquake comes, 
A shaking in the chest comes. The people go crazy. There's chaos everywhere. Then we start having Philistine suicide as they kill each other because they don't know what to do. Finally, they flee. It has been an incredible day when a man who recognized the need and recognized his God and had great faith and put it into action and made his plan but trusted God but sacrificed all and went to war gets to sit back and say, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. And then what happens? Just like Jonathan led the armor bearer into war. Now Jonathan and the armor bearer lead a bunch of other people in the war. Scouts that are kind of watching notice a scurrying, notice some noise, maybe some fire and smoke. Who knows what's going on? They go back and tell Saul. Saul says, what's going on? Information is learned. Before you know it, Saul and his men are engaged in the war. Before you know it, men who are in servitude are engaged in the war. Before you know it, men who are hiding out in Ephraim, they're engaged in the war. What has happened here? The leader, Jonathan, has led his armor bearer, Mr. Anonymous, and the two of them have led all of Israel to do what no one thought could happen as they're sitting back in despair, wondering what's going on with God and his people. You're going to learn when Steve Murphy does his Leadership Institute that good leaders are good followers first. This is exactly what we see here. Jonathan out front, the armor bearer learning to be a follower, and then a bunch of other people learning to follow the armor bearer. This is the story that we see. Now, what in the world does this have to do with us? Two applications. Let's go with the gospel first. I want you to look at Jonathan and see Jesus. Jonathan is the royal son who loves his people. Jonathan is the one who sees the need like Jesus sees the need. Jesus recognizes exactly, not what the Philistines are doing today, but what the great evil one, the devil, Lucifer, is doing with his minions and his world and our flesh. How oh, great is the damage being done as people are going around and their minds are being twisted and perverted. They're not thinking rightly. They're chasing after other gods. Those gods don't satisfy. They end up trading them in for other gods who do not satisfy they're desperate, coveting the things of this world, trying to find some degree of satisfaction, becoming addicted to substances. Pretty soon they see other people not as people to be served, but as enemies to oppose, and they will take out anyone, anywhere, at any time who gets between them and their happiness and their prosperity. Jesus sees that's what life on earth looks like, and then comes the lake of fire an eternal dwelling place for those who don't know Jesus Christ. Jesus sees this. He recognizes it. He has compassion. He then has faith in his Father. Jesus knows that God has declared to him that we have a plan and that you're going to go and you're going to live. You're going to go and you're going to die you're going to be placed in the grave. There's going to be this moment when you declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're going to be dead. 
And the father will not allow his son to see decay. The father will not allow his son to remain in that condition. But the father and the spirit together with the son will, will raise Jesus. He will be given new life. And that one day he will not only rise from the grave, but he will rise from the earth. He will receive his throne. He will receive his crown. He will get his people and then he will come again. And on that day, he will exercise his fury in a way that his enemies have never seen before as he rescues his bride. So Jesus, seeing the need, having faith in the Father, goes to work. To the earth he comes as he lives a perfect life for you, as he dies a cruel death for you, as he does receive that moment when he feels excommunicated from the Father as the, as the sky grows dark. He receives the taunting of the devil, the taunting of the world as they're looking up at him at the cross saying, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? This is what Jesus does is he's a man of action. But he's working the plan. This was the predestined plan before the beginning of the world. And all the while, while Jesus is working the plan, what do we see him doing? Communing with the Father, following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is this leader that Jonathan typifies. He sacrifices himself. He does not turn away. He finishes the deal. He is all in. And then what does Jesus do? Just like Jonathan led the armor bearer, so Jesus leads his armor bearers. And Jesus ends up leading a whole bunch of other people who follow the armor bearers. Jesus is not, he doesn't need us, but he's not satisfied to do the work all by himself. He loves to engage his people in his plan. So God can do it by many. God can do it by few. God can do it by two. God can do it by one. His name is Jesus. But he chooses not to because he's a leader. He loves making disciples in his image, encouraging those people sitting around, motivating them, letting them take pleasure as he takes his sword and leads the way, slaughtering people, and then looking back over his shoulder going, finish the deal, son. That's what Jesus is. He is the royal son who wins the victory for his people. Secondly, but look at the armor bearer and see us. Or look at the soldiers next to Saul and see us. Maybe even look at Saul and see us. As I've told you before, there is no need for God to use people but he informs us of what he's doing. That's what Jonathan did. He invites us, come join the fun. He leads us as we follow behind him down the mountain, through the valley of the shadow of death and up the other hill. He leads us into the presence of our enemies as Psalm 23 says. And then he's the one who strikes the decisive, decisive blow. And then he looks at us and says, one day you're going to stomp Satan under your feet. One day you're going to be soldiers 
more than conquerors, victors in Jesus. He allows us to share with him. So Jesus is the one who turns followers into warriors. And Jesus is the one who sits sideliners into soldiers. Sideliners. That's where Saul was. You see him over here on his little mountaintop, the royal king with his 600 congregants, with his little priest. The rejected king with the rejected priesthood. Doing their little religious things as you could keep reading the chapter and see they continue to do. AWOL, absentees, passive, not engaged in the fight, happy with their holy huddle, or maybe too discouraged or depressed to even lift up their heads and think about going into conflict. Put in their place, kept out of the game. This is where they are at the beginning of the story. But by the end of the story, so inspired are they by the armor bearer, and so inspired is the armor bearer by the son, the royal son, Jonathan, that you have a bunch of people engaged in the warfare. This is what I'm talking about, where God can take parents, and there's nothing worse than a passive parent. The Bible says that if you cause a little one to stumble, that you should have like this millstone put around your neck, and like the mafia used to do with cement on the feet, thrown into the sea. You're going down. You deserve to die. Jesus loves his little children. No longer be passive in any way. Satan is coming at your children. It's your duty. It's your war to follow Jesus and to, to benefit from partnering with him in what he's doing. He doesn't need you. You need him, but he lets you partner as you evangelize, as you teach, as you disciple, as you protect them as you go back and reclaim them and bring them back, and when they sin horribly, showing them grace. Come on, parents. You can't just sit back and do what everyone else does. You gotta be ambitious. I say, come on, students. It's student day here. You're going to war. You're going to your schools. You're going to your co-ops. You're gonna be playing your sports teams in your bands. You're going to be surrounded by people who are getting ready to fall to pieces. They don't know Christ. They can't enjoy life truly now. They look like they're having the time of their life, but they're miserable and their, their future is horrible. This morning, there's a hole in our gate because a young man had a wreck. I don't know the whole story. I do know that he had a wreck he turned his car on its side. He went through our gate and the police took him away in handcuffs. Satan smiles. He's probably torn up right now. And he needs the comfort of Jesus, whatever his spiritual condition is. Students, you're going to school. You don't just huddle up in your little Christian cohort and say, those people are bad. We're not like them you got to figure out a way to get involved in their life and be warriors. And you don't have to win. You just get the privilege of sharing in the victory that Jesus does as he strikes the decisive blow, messes with their hearts and says, now you, 
lead them in the prayer and let them walk with you as they go towards Christ. I end by talking to neighbors and citizens. We are in a world where our neighborhoods are going nuts and our nation is crazy, as we say. But we're not going to do our holy huddle. We're not going to watch the news and get all depressed as if God is dead. We're going to fight. How? The Bible tells you, put on the armor of God And the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So there's all kinds of things you can do out there that might help. But if you're going to follow Jesus into battle, you're going to be plugged in by speaking the truth in love. That means you're going to share the gospel with people who don't want Jesus, wait for him to do his work. You're going to share truth with those who don't want Jesus and wait for him to open their minds. He's going to do the work, and by you faithfully following his lead and engaging in battle, who knows what God might do. I end by talking to elders and the church. I don't want to be the king over here. King Joe is passive. He's a sad leader, weighing the cost. Do I really want to get involved? It's kind of nice playing it safe. After all, it didn't work out so well last time. Let's just. And around Saul and preacher Joe, I'm not the king, by the way, but around Saul and Joe, our elders and a bunch of other men, probably 125 of you, we have our little priest. We do our little thing. We offer our little sacrifices. And as you'll see in chapter 14, God's not always inclined with, to like our religious duties that we do. But maybe, just maybe, we're going to hear a victory over there that somebody else is doing. And we're going to look and say, our God is not dead. He's not called us to be a cruise ship or a country club or anything resulting this monastery. He's calling us to lift up our heads and he's calling us to to spend ourselves, to make plans, to strategize, to go for. We may make the stupidest decisions ever, but at least the last stupid decision we're going to make is sitting here anymore. Let's do something. We got people to lead to Jesus Christ. We have children to grow. We have disciples to reclaim. We have a world that's going to hell. They need to know our truth. And so we have to get ambitious. And that's why I want to end by showing you those things we started with again. The vision. It's right there. We'll have to work on that. Oh, that we wouldn't be angry people. Maybe angry at the devil. I don't want to be angry. I'm just a horrible sinner before knowing Christ and after knowing Christ, I'm too often like Saul, the 600 men. I just, I got nothing other than grace. I want to tell you about what Jesus has done for you. But I do have truth. I'm not supposed to hide it under a bushel. I'm supposed to let my light shine and I'm supposed to speak forth truth and let the world know what Jesus has to say. 
I got nothing, so I plan. I make strategies, but I, I'm trusting Jesus. I don't know what he's doing at Horizon Church. I don't know what he's doing in my life. But I do know that I need to pray more. Trust in him. I need brothers and sisters praying. Because there's people to love. You, and not only you. As many as the Lord wants to add to his church, those people need love. So therefore, I, I want to go meet them and go to war on their plateau. They don't have to come to me. I want to go to them. I want to speak their language. I want to hear their hurts. I want to engage in their discussions. I want to be in their schools. I want to invite them to my parties. I want to be out there in their world speaking their language so we don't make an apology here at Horizon for being a modern Reformed church. It's who we think Christ has called us to be. But I want to live intentionally. I'm 53. Jim retired when he's 65. I don't know if my brain will go that long. How many years do I have left to serve him? How many do you? Bill Ritchie, his funeral, I believe, will be here Friday. An elder who's no longer with us. Am I going to hold on to my little treasures? And, or am I just going to spend myself swinging for the fences, playing ball? I want to be a good sacrificial soldier, servant, friend of Jesus. And I don't want to have to compel people to follow or guilt them into it or pay them or negotiate or compromise. If God will help us and the elders continue our repentance. For this represents repentance. This represents us in 2020 looking and saying we need to put our aspirational goals up there, even though they're not actual, and say, may God help us be more about that. Maybe the elders of this church can be the armor bearers, the first responders to Jonathan, the first responders to Jesus. And just as Jesus has earned our trust, and we go, your heart is my heart, your soul is my soul. Maybe you guys will follow a bunch of armor bearers, anonymous people, not that gifted. Come on, friends. Let's go over to the garrison of the unsaved. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few.